Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we consider that warfare we are in the midst of, we know there are times we have failed our King in the past. We pause early in our service to confess our sins to the Lord. Philippians 1 verse 3 is our call to confession today. Hear God's word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, Most of Paul's letters start this way, with him giving thanks for the church, for their faith. He often also ends his letters by naming certain people specifically, gratefully. There's two things we can learn from this. One, we are an ungrateful people generally. It's important in Thanksgiving season to remember this and to come to God deliberately with thanksgiving. Uh, How often does our speech about the church or about the state of affairs out there begin and end with thankfulness, the way Paul's does here. I know that's personally convicting to me. I can't say my Facebook posts in the last year have been characterized by the hallmark of gratitude, necessarily. It's not what you see on social media, usually. We're an ungrateful people, generally. And second, more specifically, we don't give thanks for each other. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's writing to the church, saying he's thankful for them. The faithfulness of other like-minded believers is a real encouragement uh, when you attend worship with us faithfully week by week, the helpful conversations we have together, the feasts and the singing that we share. We see God's grace at work in the body of Christ gathered around us. But we're slow to notice, we're slow to appreciate it and to thank one another for their example. So let's confess our sins before Almighty God. I encourage you to kneel as you're able and we'll pray together the prayer that's printed in the bulletin. Discourse is what we've been doing for the past uh, month or two. John 13 to 17 is kind of a section, so we're coming to the end of that now. And we look now at John 17. Let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word. You've given it to us by your Holy Spirit, and we ask that your Spirit would now again be active as we read it, as we consider it uh, proclaimed and preached. Lord, may your Spirit... uh, Make our hearts tender, uh, to know, uh, to be convicted, to be encouraged by these words of our Lord uh, spoken to you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for them, for giving us this window into uh, the Trinity and your purpose for us. Help us, Lord, to learn to grow by this word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John 17, hear God's inerrant word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is going to be the last that sermon from John for a while. This comes to the end of a, a section here. We enter into the Passion next. Uh, this is a unique text of Scripture we have. This is the only place in the Bible uh, with such a long, close-up interaction of Father and Son. The other three Gospels don't include this, and it's quite rich with meaning for us. Much to learn from this passage.
uh, the basic point, bumper sticker kind of beginning once again, Jesus prays for you. He's doing that now. This isn't just a one-time thing. Jesus prays for you. And he prays that you would know him, that you would be kept in the truth and kept in unity. Those are the basic things that Jesus prays for us. So let's uh, look at this in sections here. The first five verses are the first uh, kind of introductory section where Jesus is praying uh, that he be glorified. And then from uh, verse 6 to 19 is where Jesus prays for the disciples who are standing there with him. And then from verse 20 to the end is where Jesus prays for the whole world. So we'll look at that in, in those kind of sections today. You might see that in the outline in the bulletin as well. So first, Father and Son, knowing God, glorifying God. Uh, the first uh, thing to note before we uh, uh, begin in going verse by verse, uh, just three things by way of introduction. Uh, first, uh, Jesus uh, is praying this out loud, uh, almost certainly. Uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and he said, right, he's probably in the temple court. Remember, this is the night of, um, of Passover, the night bef- uh, just before the, the crucifixion is coming. He'll be arrested in just a few hours. Uh, Jesus, uh, as I've mentioned before, back in chapter 15, says, I'm the true vine. And over the temple gates was an actual golden vine representing Israel that God was growing Israel to be fruitful in the world. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the true Israel. Well, he's standing in the temple courts, I think, when he says that, as the disciples see the vine. And so Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And so all the way from verse uh, chapter 15 to the end of chapter 17, I believe, Jesus is in the temple worshiping uh, with uh, the disciples. So the first thing by way of introduction here is that it was traditional to go pray at the temple after Passover meal. They're doing what's traditional, uh, what was done by many, most uh, worshipers uh, then. And that's something to keep in mind. Traditions really come alive sometimes, uh, like here, right? Israel's been doing this every year for centuries, uh, worshiping around a Passover table, dinner, meal, and then going to church to worship uh, for a time before, before going back home. So some, something like the Christmas Eve service that we have from year to year, right? We have that, have that traditional service on a high, holy day. Well, there are some years, sometimes, when the traditional thing that we do uh, just comes alive with meaning, right? Uh, the se- a season of thanksgiving uh, in a harder year can be more meaningful, than when you've got all kinds of uh, prosperity and everything's gone smoothly the whole year, right? Think of the original Thanksgiving with the pilgrims who had gone through very difficult times, right? And they come and they give thanks to God, and that has stuck with us for a long time. Traditions can come alive sometimes, uh, and richer meaning comes clear. Uh, Maybe the year 2020 is one of those times to have a more meaningful Thanksgiving season. Well, that's one thing. Jesus and his disciples here are doing what's traditional, but it it so comes alive as Jesus is just hours away from being crucified. So that's the first thing. Second, Jesus prays when trouble's coming. Jesus prays. Think of where Jesus is. Think of where the disciples are. They're in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, If they're at the temple, uh, well, Jesus could petition Pilate to save him, Pilate's right next door to the temple. 
Jesus could petition the Sanhedrin to save him. They too are right next door to the temple. But no, Jesus petitions his heavenly Father. While the earthly rulers are gathering together to reject God's Messiah. But God has set his king on his holy hill. And there he is, on the holy hill, in the temple. I'm quoting Psalm 2 here. Psalm 2 is coming true as Jesus is uh, saying these things. So Jesus prays when trouble is coming. He goes uh, to the house of God with God's people and prays. That's the second thing. And third, by way of introduction, the disciples are listening. The disciples are listening. This is one way that rabbis taught disciples back in those days, by listening to them pray. Remember the disciples even asked at one point, Lord, teach us to pray. Every disciple asked their rabbi that very thing. Teach teach us how to pray. That was one way you disciple your people. So the disciples were meant to overhear this. And, and we, too, overhear this prayer in the same way. And we can learn, we ought to learn all that we can from it. So I find it immensely useful just to imagine Jesus standing in the temple courts before that vine, before the temple gates, praying this prayer out loud with the disciples all clustered around him listening. And when we read, reread this, in that setting, it really comes alive. First of all, Jesus, let's go into the text now, verse, uh, verse 1 and 2. Jesus first says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Jesus asks to be glorified, to be glorified, uh, so that he can glorify the Father. He has authority over all flesh to give life to all, eternal life to any uh, whom he wants. That, that's a, uh, quite a phrase, authority over all flesh. Uh, that's Jesus, not just a, some other religious teacher who happened to get crucified. Uh, no, he has authority over all flesh. He is uh, God the Son. And he has authority to give life. And Jesus goes on to say what that life is. Life is knowing God. Life is knowing Jesus, whom God sent. That's what life is. We talk sometimes about the meaning of life. Right? The, the meaning of life is unknown to those who reject God. But, but uh, those who look to God's word and believe that God is the creator of all things and has sent Jesus uh, to fix that creation, we know the meaning of life. It's to know God and to know Jesus. And Jesus speaks also of glorifying the Father in his earthly ministry. I glorified you on earth, verse 4. I've done the work you gave me to do. Now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. There again, Jesus is asserting confidently, talking to his father, saying, I, had, I was in glory with you before this world was ever here. I'd like to have that back. <laughs> Jesus was humbled to enter this creation, humbled to the point of death on a cross. He's looking ahead to exaltation. And he's asking for it. And, and there's nothing, uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? There's nothing um, overly bold or brash about that, right? Jesus can, can ask for that, and his Father will give it to him. Well, that's the first section here, the, uh, verse 5 especially, a good verse to refute uh, those cultists that come to your door, right? I've had one or two, and one of their uh, tactics they like to use is to say, uh, well, na- name a verse for me in the Bible that says that Jesus is God. 
And that, that kind of puts the burden of proof on you, see, and then you've got to remember scripture, and you've got to be able to quote it, and that's a, that's a tough thing to do, right? So they kind of set you back, but there are all kinds of them, and if you, and if you uh, just make a, a quick list, add this one to that list. Uh, Jesus says right here, I had glory with you before the world existed. Uh, one final thing to learn here, just in our prayers, as Jesus begins this prayer, notice the, the intention, the the purpose, the end goal of his prayer, what he's asking for. It's in verse 1. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Right? Anything we ask for in prayer should be so that we can love and serve God better. So that we can glorify God. Right? And we often, in our our, um, self-absorption, we often forget that, right? That the ultimate goal is not for us to be comfortable or to be healthy, but for us to glorify God. That's why we should pray for what we pray for. Uh, So Jesus is looking the cross full in the face as he says this. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. And what that means is the cross for him. Uh, One pastor friend of mine I uh, likes to say that a good prayer to pray is to say, Lord, whatever it takes to glorify you, whatever it takes to sanctify me, give me that. And it's a scary prayer to pray, but it's what we want. It's, it's what the Lord wants for us. And, so, and sometimes it takes a lot because we resist so much. But whatever it takes, that's something akin to what Jesus is saying here in these first five verses. Glorify the Son so the Son can glorify you. We'll come back to that. That starts to hint at the unity between Father and Son and the relationship there. That, that's later. Uh, so uh, next, verse 6 and on. Now we turn to the disciples. And maybe you have a section or a paragraph break in your Bibles to show this is a new kind of thing, right? I've shown your name to the people whom you gave, the, the, the disciples whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. So keep them in the truth. Uh, so here Jesus speaks of his mission. His mission was to make the Father known to make the Father's name known, to make the Father's words known. I gave them your words, they're in your name. I've done that, and they have kept your word. Verse 6, end of verse 6. There I want to pause for a minute. And this is why we looked at uh, imputation and justification in the confession time today. When I first started reading through this to study it, uh, that phrase really tripped me up. End of verse 6, Jesus says to his father that the disciples that are with him have kept your word. And I thought, really? Peter walking on water, sinking? Uh, Arguing about who's the greatest? Uh, Peter's denial to come in an hour or two? They're all going to run away from Jesus? They've kept your word? Yeah. This is where imputation comes in. Because Jesus knows all the faults and foibles of his disciples. And yet he says to his father, they've kept your word. How can he say that? Because of the cross that's coming. Because he's going to take those faults onto himself and impute their guilt to him. And God will impute Christ's righteousness to them. It's just like in Numbers. This is why we read from Numbers. Uh, Fascinating text. 
where the, the Moabite king wants to curse Israel as they're coming into, encroaching into his territory. Uh, but Balaam will only say what God says to say. And God says, nope, they're going to be blessed. And it happens three times. We only read the second one. The second one where, where Balak, uh, Balak's unhappy with the first prophecy, which was Israel will be blessed. And so Balak says, let's try from a different place. Maybe God will say something different if I offer an offering from somewhere else. To really silly when we think about that, right? And that's why the prophecy begins, God is not like a man to lie or to change his mind. I'm not going to change what I say about Israel just because you move me to a different place. That, that, no, you can't do that. And then he says in there, Numbers 23, I have not observed iniquity in Israel. Whoa. Same thing here, right? Just like the disciples over and over mess things up. And Jesus says, they've kept your word. So back in Numbers, you know what God said to Moses about Israel in Numbers? He says, let's wipe them all out and start over just with you. Because these people have tested me these ten times. Israel sinned over and over in the desert. Right? But God says through Balaam, I have not observed iniquity in Israel. And that's true for you and I personally as well. When we see our sin, we know our guilt before God. Even when we accept the, the forgiveness of that, it can be a difficult thing for us to go on and accept that God sees no iniquity in us. And there you have it, in Old Testament and in New, that's what happens. They've kept your word, Jesus says. He prays for the disciples here. But moving on to verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them, not for the world. Not that it's wrong to pray for the world, but we should give special attention to Christ's people in our prayers. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, Jesus, in verse 10, says he, that he's more glorified than before. In them, in the disciples, he is glorified. Now, uh, now he's more glorified that now that the church has been given as the Father's gift to him is the point there. Now, maybe, maybe more glory is kind of the wrong way to put that, right? Jesus is already fully divine with immense glory. The nations are a drop in the bucket to him. What can we add with our puny praise to God's glory? You know, that, that's all true. But Jesus says here that he is glorified in his disciples who believe in him. End of verse 10. That, that's something to consider that Jesus does receive glory as we follow him, as we trust him and believe in him. And in verse 11, Jesus lays out the situation that calls for prayer. This is a good example for us to consider as well. When you're uh, facing a tough time, it's good to simply lay out the situation before the Lord. That's what Jesus does. Why is he praying as he's praying? Verse 11 is the answer. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Keep them in your name. So you, you see the, the issue here. Jesus has been with them for three years. Now he's going to ascend to the Father. And the disciples uh, will have the Spirit. He's already spoken to them. That they'll have help. But Jesus is, wants to pray for them because he's going to go to the Father, be out of the world again, but they'll be left in the world. And he knows what that's about. He's been in the world for 30 years now. So he prays for them. So do that in your own prayers. Lay out the situation that has you worried, has you concerned, and then that can help us better know how to pray. 
He's leaving them in the world. Uh, Jesus asked to uh, keep them in, in the name, in the fellowship of the Father. Uh, verse 12, I found a, a connection a bit with uh, Veterans Day from this past uh, Wednesday. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one has been lost, except he speaks here of Judas, who was, uh, it was in the plan all along that he be lost. Fascinating verse. I have guarded them. Not one has been lost. All right, I, I stood watch. I guarded and kept them all while I was here. That reminded me of Adam in the garden, for one thing. Adam in the garden was told to do two things. Remember what they are? He, he was told to tend and keep the garden. To tend it and to keep it. In other words, work the ground, weed it, water it, actually work the garden, make it grow, but also to keep it. Which, and we're seeing that word keep a lot here, right? I've kept them. Keep them in your name. The, 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 it's very close to the word guard. Keep means to guard. Make sure n nothing invades the garden uh, to damage it. Uh, work the garden itself and keep out the stuff that'll be bad for it. Those two things, which Adam and Eve failed to do, by the way, right? Say, the serpent enters the garden. And they don't keep the garden. They don't guard the garden like they should. So uh, Jesus is asking the Father, keep them as I leave them. Keep them in your name. So we're made in God's image. We're made to guard and to keep and to protect, too. And that's why in our society we strive to honor policemen, military service personnel, the veterans service this past Wednesday here in Howell. They read the watch, right? It's a, you honor those who have stood watch and who are now relieved. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I've stood watch. I've guarded over these disciples that you gave me. I've kept them. Now you keep them as I go to you. Jesus, uh, again in verse 13, is, I think, obviously praying out loud to the Father for the benefit of the disciples. Now think of, think of him saying this in verse 13. Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus, in other words, verse 13 is saying, Jesus doesn't just want them to survive, right, to, to avoid destruction like Judas. No, he wants them to have his joy. That's verse 13. Uh, the reason that we want to be kept in the Lord is so that we have his joy. Verse 14, I've given them your word, the world has hated them. Here, verse 14 to 16, we get into that whole thing about being in the world but not of the world. You've probably heard that phrase. This is where it comes from. It's not just some evangelical cliche that's disconnected from truth. It's right here. Uh, we are sent into the world, uh, Jesus says in verse 18, but we are not of the world. And he emphasizes that, verse 14 and 15. Uh, so we have this antithesis between believers and the rest of humanity, right? We, as believers, we aren't like them. We've been changed to rejoice in our Creator. So there's, there's something fundamentally different uh, about us from the world. And this is something that can um, have Christians disagree. Uh, some emphasize that we are not of the world. Some emphasize that we are in the world. Right? And, and which, which of those you emphasize will often lead to disagreements. 
uh, it can be helpful to locate yourself on that spectrum. Uh, I suppose ideally we ought to all be exactly right in the middle and, and uh, emphasize both of those things. But, but we tend to emphasize one or the other. Uh, it, 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 so like if, if not being in the world, uh, excuse me, if not being of the world, uh, what Jesus talks about here in verses 14 and 15, if that's like a 10, and if being in the world is kind of a one, right? I'd like to put things on a one to 10 scale and then, and then put yourself on that scale. Where would you say you are? You know, I'd, I'd put myself around a six or a seven, right? I emphasize a little bit more that we're not of the world. Not that I do not deny that we're not sent into the world, but not being of the world is a bit more of a thing for me, right? And, and that might lead, so there are other Christians who are like a three, who say, we're sent into the world. We have, to, have to, we have to be in the world to be salt and light in the world, right? They're, they're, again, these aren't either or. We have, we have to affirm both. But we emphasize one more than the other. So as a seven, I might look at other Christians, a, th- a three Christian, and, and be tempted to accuse them of compromising with the world. Not necessarily. They're just emphasizing, hey, we need to be in the world to have an effect on the world, right? Yeah. Uh, the boat analogy always helps here, I think. Right? A boat is built to be in the water. It's got to be in the water to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, but if the water gets into the boat, then you've got a problem, and then the boat sinks. Right? In the same way, Christians have to be in the world, but not have the world seep into their heart and soul so that they sink. Uh, so that's uh, how Jesus prays for us. He, he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. They need to be in the world, but they are not of the world. And that's why Jesus is praying, keep them in your truth. Your word is truth, Jesus says in verse 17. Sanctify them. Uh, and, and Jesus uses, there's several um, synonyms there that, that Jesus uses. Verse 19, he also says, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Uh, and those are two uh, big church words, sanctify and consecrate, that just mean make holy, right? Uh, make them holy. Uh, I've made myself holy, uh, righteous. Jesus was holy for us so that we could become holy. That's the goal. That's the goal, uh, to be made holy. And when we, when we talk about the word holy, right, then we, all, we have, to have to be careful what we say about that too. We get this idea that holiness means shining your halo, floating two inches above the ground, pressing your hands together, gazing up at the sky, right? That's not what holy means. Holy is grinding out a workday selflessly, doing the dishes joyfully, sharing your toys with your brothers and sisters. That's holiness. You, you, you cut away all the sinful desires that chase you, and you go after obeying God cheerfully. Jesus was completely uh, righteous and holy for us. That's the goal. And that's what Jesus is praying for his disciples. That he's set himself apart that we may be sanctified in truth. Verse 19. So that's Jesus' his prayer for his disciples. And then he turns again, verse 20, and says, now I'm not just praying for these 12 who are clustered around me right now, listening to this. I'm praying for everyone who's going to believe through their word. Fascinating, end of verse 20. Through their word. That, that's how we've come to believe in Jesus. Through the apostles' word. We read, we read the New Testament, which they wrote by the help of the Spirit. 
and we believe in it. We believe that it's true that the testimony they have of Jesus and who he was, what he did, is true. And so we've come to believe. So Jesus, in verse 20, turns to pray for you and for me, specifically. And he prays, verse 21, Keep all believers united as the Father in me and I in you, that they may be one, that they may be in us, verse 21. So Jesus prays for unity for the church here. And this is something to ponder for a moment. Unity here, as I considered this this week in these uh, verses, especially verse 21 and 23, that's where Jesus is describing what unity is. And what he points to is the Father and the Son and how they are together and united. Right? What I discern from that is that unity is not just agreement on issues or ideas. Right? That's, that isn't necessarily what unites the Father and the Son. You know, when we think about church unity, we think, oh yeah, cradle baptism, pedo baptism. Uh, any, pick any other theology you want to. Uh, some issue that divides the church, right? That's not real, so much what Jesus is after here. Uh, it's the Father being in the Son, the Son being in the Father. You know, consider uh, David and Jonathan. Uh, when they disagreed about if Saul was trying to kill David. Remember that passage? And they, they do the whole shoot the arrow in the field thing to signal if it's true or not. Uh, they, they really had a serious disagreement at that point. And one said, he's not trying to kill you. And David said, yes, he is. They, they did not agree. And yet they were completely united in heart and mind. They loved one another with a covenant love. David and Jonathan. This scripture is very clear about that. The church is, is not very good at sticking together through disagreements. Uh, and I, one thing I think that God is doing with this whole COVID time is he's giving the church practice in it. Because I've seen it in so many different places. The church being divided over how to respond to all this COVID stuff. Right? And we've got different views. And different people want to do different things that can really lead to a serious breach if we let it. Uh, God's giving us time to practice unity. Well, unity, again, isn't so much about agreement on issues like those. It, what, what it's about, and look again at verse 21 and 23, it's about being oriented to the other person in love and in service and in loyalty and in seeking their good. That's what the Father does towards the Son, Right? He's oriented towards his son, wants to give him a bride, wants to glorify him. The son, we see right at the beginning of this chapter, is oriented to the father. He prays to him. He wants to glorify the father. That's what unity is about. And that's what we ought to pursue. And again, in verse 21, 23, Jesus also says, that the world may know, that, the, that they may believe that you sent me. The world is less likely to believe that Jesus is from God if his followers act like the world and divide over worldly things. So we have to remember that. I think unity in fellowship is a goal and a blessing in itself. Right? We read Psalm 133, right? how good and pleasant it is when brothers live in unity. It's a, it's a good thing in itself, but it's also an argument for the truth of Christianity when people see that in action. 
Well, verse 22, part of the glory of Jesus is his unity with the Father, right? The glory that you have given me, I've given them. And what is that glory? That they may be one, even as we are one. Part of the glory is the unity, is being together. I thought of that just this morning. I thought, uh, thinking of this, you know, one of the glories of weddings, you know, we're in a wedding chapel here, right? They, they, they're going to have a wedding at 1 o'clock today. You think of weddings you've been to in the recent past, weddings of friends especially, right? One of the glories of weddings is the wedding party. The friends of the bride, the friends of the groom, who've been through a lot with them. I'm sure they argued at some various point, right? But there you stand with your friend as they give their life to another. That's glorious. It, it, sometimes we make it about the tuxes and the dresses and, all, and the fancy everything, the decorations. The real glory there is, is friends standing together and one giving her, her life, his life, to another. That's the unity, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we're going to know that better in glory when our fellowship with Jesus and with the Father is unhindered. A glorious thing. Well, I'm out of time, and I just got to my favorite verse in this whole text. Verse 23, uh, 4, 24. But what does Jesus want? Right? In our um, confession, our catechism, one thing that we, de- we define prayer, Westminster does. It says, prayer is the offering up of our desires to God. Right? What, what is the desire that Jesus has? That would be a helpful way to study through this chapter. Uh, there are a few specific things, right? Glorify your son, keep the disciples in your truth, and here, verse 24, I think is the high point. What does Jesus want? He comes right out and says it. I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that you've given me. What Jesus wants is he wants us to be with him. He's about to leave them, and he knows all things. He knows this is going to be a long time, (laughs) right? He knows the helper is coming. The Spirit will be with us. It's not like he's abandoning us. He's told us that already, but he will not be with us. And Jesus wants to be with us, to see his glory. It's a wonderful Wonderful verse to consider in the light of the, the metaphor of the bride, the, the church being the bride of Christ, right? Jesus, the bride, Jesus, the bridegroom. What does a husband want? Uh, the, the newlywed who goes off to work that first day, he wants to get back home and be with his wife. That's Jesus. Remember that uh, uh, time? The, the, the rabbis told the story of the, the husband who's engaged and he needs to finish building his house before he gets married. And, and so he, he works at it all day, day and night. He's working at it, and he, he goes to his father every now and then and says, is it done yet? Can I go now? Can I want to get married? And the father says, no, it's not even close. You've still got to do this room, and you've got to do that, and that's not right. Get it right. And finally, the rabbi walks by one day and says, son, when, when's the wedding? When are you going to be married? He sees him working on the house. He knows the wedding's coming. And the son, in frustration, kind of throws down his hammer and wood, and he says, no one knows the day or the hour of the wedding. Not the son, not the angels in heaven. Only my father. That's the context of that verse that Jesus says. 
It's, it's a holy frustration at wanting to be with his bride. He wants to be with you. Jesus desires that we be with him and that we see his glory. Because the disciples have only known Jesus in his humbled state. They've only seen him as a man walking on this earth. They have no idea. We have no idea. The glory of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father. There's an old, old hymn that says, Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, Jesus uh, came to us. And it's a, it's a poetic description. Uh, ivory palaces, really? That's kind of quaint. But it's trying to get at something. There's immense, great glory in heaven that we can't imagine. Jesus came from there. He went back there. He's taking us there. Well, as a quick conclusion today, uh, just one word of application. Uh, parents uh, with kids. You, you are here today, uh, and I would urge you, as Jesus does in this text, pray out loud for your children. That's what Jesus is doing here. And if you don't have uh, little ones, maybe you're married. Husbands, pray out loud for your wives. With them there. At the dinner table. This is a helpful, edifying spiritual exercise, I believe. And that's what Jesus, this is part of Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. Is that he prays for them. Let them know your desires for them. By telling them to God in front of them. Have to be careful with that. That can, you know, we know some of the uh, some of the ways that can go wrong. Some of sometimes the, the jokes go that way, right? You you want to avoid lecturing your kids in the form of a prayer to God. You want to avoid venting frustration with your children in the form of a prayer to God. Uh, it, things can go awry, but it's a helpful thing uh, to to pour out your desires to God for your children, for your marriage, uh, for your friends. Uh, when you're gathered with them around the table, for example. Well, uh, I'll leave it there for now. Remember that Jesus prays for you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be kept in truth and in unity. Let us pray for one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for this word. We look back once again and we pray, pray it back to you. Lord, you've given us so much. And we ask that uh, with what you've given us, that we would glorify you. That we would know you. That we would know your son Jesus. You've given us work to accomplish here. And so we pray that it would glorify you, what you've given us to do. You've revealed your name to us. You are keeping us in your word. And as we sing sometimes, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. That we consider ourselves as a gift from you to your Son. A gift to be kept in holiness and in purity. Help us, Lord, as we are in the world uh, to be kept from the evils uh, of the world. Lord, send us out into the world. Uh, keep us from isolating ourselves from those who need to know uh, of Jesus. Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to be kept in unity together, to stand together for the truth, to love one another, to serve one another. And Lord, let us long for the day when we are with uh, you in glory when your son's prayer will be answered and fulfilled and we will see your glory. 
Heavenly Father, until that day, keep us steadfast in your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, that we sing as he taught us to pray. Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper, which we're about to celebrate, is a feast of remembrance and of communion and of hope. We come remembering that our Lord Jesus was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood, to fulfill for us all obedience, uh, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus established a new eternal covenant of grace that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. We come to have communion in the present with this same Christ who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In breaking the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us to life eternal. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. And we come in hope for the future, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge, a foretaste of the feast of love of which we will partake when his kingdom has fully come when with unveiled face we will behold him and made like him in his glory. Since by his death and resurrection and ascension, Christ has obtained for us the life-giving spirit who unites us all in one body, so are we to receive this supper in true love and mindful of the communion of saints. So come, for all things are now ready. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you're a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.